Genesis 42, 43, and 44 were kind of all taken at one time. And I'm using Genesis 42 as sort of the basis for all three chapters. But I encourage you this week to read all three chapters. And what's going on here, and I want to kind of preempt you before we read the text together that we're going to read at the beginning of Genesis 42, so that you can kind of see what's happening. Because one of the things that's going on here in these three chapters is we're sort of asking that question, what's going on? Because you you read it, and this is the part now where Joseph is testing his brothers, right? The brothers have come to Egypt, and Joseph is now makes them jump through these hoops. And we can kind of wonder what is the point of this part of the story? Like, is Joseph just getting revenge on his brothers for being jerks when he was younger? Um, Is he just not able to deal with this emotionally? And so he's like just stalling to try to figure out how to navigate these emotional waters. Um, There's lots of different ways that we can look at this text. and, And those things are in there for sure. There's pieces of some of all of those things. But what I want to see in, in, in Genesis 42 and 43 and 44, but especially 42 today, and hopefully you'll see it as I read, we'll sort of pick out some key phrases, is that this is really a story now about guilt and conscience and confrontation and reckoning, which leads to forgiveness. This is about guilt and reckoning and confrontation of that which leads to forgiveness. And this is important because the camera lens has kind of zoomed in on Joseph now for several chapters in the story of Jacob's family. But now the camera lens is zooming back and we're picking up the brothers again. And so we have to understand that while this is a story about Joseph, and as we've talked about, God is telling Joseph's story and Joseph's life and accomplishing things for Joseph... God is also telling his story and his covenant promise story in terms of the people of Israel or the sons, the whole family of Jacob. And so that's what we're looking at today now is God is now turning and saying, I've dealt with, I've dealt with Joseph, now I've got to deal with the rest of the family. The rest of the family has to get bought into this bigger picture of what God is doing. Okay, so just as I'm reading, just understand that we're looking here at a story now of God dealing with the wider family of Jacob and specifically in the area of the need of confrontation of their guilt, understanding that there's a reckoning for it leading to repentance. And we'll get to repentance and and we'll get to forgiveness next week. So let's read 42. Uh, I'm going to read verses 1 to 22 and sort of base the larger text off these verses. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt, but Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel... Remember, Jacob has another name, Israel. The sons of Israel came to buy among others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from? He said. And they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. 
And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. And he said to them, no, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, we, your servants, are 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, it is as I said to you, you are spies, and by this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested whether there is truth in you, or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. And on the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households and bring your youngest brother to me so your words may be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. And then they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy, but you did not listen? So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. This is God's word. Guilt words and guilty consciences. And what I mean by guilt words is I imagine that for most of you and for me, we have certain words in our lives. They could be a name, they could be a place, they could be a topic, even a date that as a rule we generally avoid because they trigger memories of a past sin and a past shame, a past guilt that we don't want to trigger and stir up. And so we just avoid those words and those topics. So let's not talk too much about bullies, because if you bring up the idea of bullies and bullying, for instance, that just means I'm going to remember those times that I was a bully and I behaved in horrible ways towards my classmates and towards weaker children. Or for some it may be, let's not mention adultery or stealing or pornography or abuse because those are trigger words of our own shameful behavior and guilt that is painful for us to recall. And it could be a place, it could be a person's name. We just avoid those topics, we avoid those names. It's just a general understanding. I don't talk about that stuff. So don't mention the name Joseph. Don't talk about the sister in Dothan. Make no mention of Egypt. We as brothers don't talk about those things. I think those were the guilt words of Joseph's brothers. And then chapter 42 opens up, and I think with one of those guilt words of the brothers. No one mentions Joseph, no one talks about Dothan, but this word Egypt is the last word they want to hear, and that word now is on everybody's lips. Everybody's talking about Egypt. There's food in Egypt. There's grain in Egypt. We need to go to Egypt. And with all this news going around about Egypt, Jacob looks at his sons who are now fully grown adults. Remember this? They're all 50 or 60 years old. They're the heads of their households. They have wives and children and they live together as a family in this commune, this this village. But Jacob looks around now at his sons, the heads of their own families, and he says to them, why are you guys all just standing around looking at each other? Go down to Egypt and get grain And buy some. Everybody knows there's grain for sale in Egypt. And the the brothers are all just 
kind of, you can just picture them kind of staring at each other. Yeah, Egypt's the last place we want to go, right? Egypt's that place we never talk about. That's where we sold our younger brother into. They don't want anything to do with Egypt. They fully expect him to be dead now, but Egypt is not a place of good memories for them. But Jacob says one of the key phrases of the text, and we're going to look at, pick out some key phrases here that, that show us what the narrator is trying to tell us in this account of Jacob and Joseph. Go down to Egypt and buy grain so that we may live and not die. See what he's saying there? So that we may live and not die. And that key phrase, if you remember, is going to come up later when Joseph talks to his brothers. The family of Jacob is in danger of dying and not just physically, as we will see, but also spiritually. And God has prepared Egypt to be a source of life for them through the chosen brother Joseph. And so the brothers stop staring at each other silently and they get on their donkeys and they get their camels together and they set out to Egypt to buy food for their households. And we notice right away in verse 4 that again, Jacob did not send Benjamin with them. Benjamin is Joseph's true brother. Benjamin is Joseph's younger brother by Rachel, right? The the, the wife of, of Jacob. And the other brothers are, are sons of Leah and Bilhah and Zilpha and the other wives and concubines that he had. It's a complicated family like all of ours. And... Uh, and so Benjamin is, is, is Joseph's true brother by Rachel. And it's evident that he is now the new favored son. Right? So Benjamin doesn't go. Even though he's a grown man, Jacob is still, you know, you stay close to home. And so this family tension is still there, clearly, as far as Jacob is concerned. There are favorite brothers and there are not so favorite brothers. But anyway, Benjamin stays behind. And this dynamic is clear. The narrator, it's amazing as you read this story, there's not a single wasted sentence. There's not a single wasted word in the story of Joseph. There's so much we could learn from all of it. But we just, I got to stay focused today. We're just talking about this one thread of repentance that the narrator weaves through here. So he says, Joseph's brothers came down and bowed themselves before him. Another key phrase. When they come in the big crowd of people to get grain, and as people came for grain, they're bowing to this Egyptian noble who is there, probably on a podium of some sort, overlooking the crowds as they're coming, distributing the grain, and everybody's bowing and overseeing it. And even though they don't realize it, they are bowing before Joseph, their brothers. And it would almost slip by us if we're not careful, but the writer of the story reminds us in verse 9 that Joseph remembers his dreams, and now so do we. This moment has finally come, and it it almost slips by. It's almost anticlimactic. I mean, this is the moment that Joseph was waiting for when his brothers would be bowing to him. And it's been 22 years. It was 13 years to get from 17 to age 30 when he came into the house of Pharaoh. Then there were seven years of plenty. And we're told this is in the second year of famine. This has been 22 years. Joseph is now 39 years old, not 17 years old. But 22 years it took for this dream to come to pass. And it's almost anticlimactic. We almost slip right by it in the story. But God's purpose from 22 years ago is coming into fulfillment. The brothers of Joseph are bowing to him. And this is a God-directed encounter and it's going to accomplish God-glorifying purpose in the family of Jacob. So picking them out of the crowd, Joseph recognizes them and they get a personal interview with Joseph who very strangely and suddenly accuses them of being spies. This is weird, right? We're wondering, why is Joseph behaving this way? He says, you are spies, he declares. And they protest, no, we are not guilty of being spies. We are honest men. Key phrase. 
the accusation you are spies? No, no, we are honest men. We are actually 12 brothers of one man. One is dead and the youngest isn't here. Now this seems like an odd way to fulfill the dream, right? Seems like an odd way that Joseph would finally recognize that his brothers have come and bowed before him. But the narrator of the account clues us in as to why Joseph is behaving this way with some more key phrases. We're honest men. The brothers have protested, but this isn't exactly what Joseph isn't this exactly what Joseph doubts. Joseph's personal experience with these brothers is that they are not honest men at all. They are just as deceitful as their father was, right? They were going to kill him. Then they sold him into slavery. Then they took his robe and they covered it in blood and they tricked his father with this robe saying that he was killed by wild beasts. They are deceitful and he knows they are deceitful. And both God and Joseph have a purpose behind this testing that then ensues as Joseph begins to test in multiple ways his brother's integrity. And the writer tells us that this is the purpose of Joseph's behavior. Why why is Joseph acting this way? He tells us. He says, by this you shall be tested. Show me your youngest brother. I know how you treat favored sons. Show me your younger brother. Then he says, by this your words will be tested, whether there is truth in you. Joseph is testing the integrity of his brothers, and he says to them in verse 18, if you pass this test, notice the key phrase, you will live. He says later on, if you do this, you will not die. Why did Jacob send his sons down to Egypt? He said, go down to Egypt so that we live and don't die. And Joseph says to his brothers, if you pass this test, you will live and not die. They're thinking physically. They're thinking they're coming to Egypt for physical life. God and Joseph are trying to discover whether there's any spiritual life in this family. The family of Jacob has been spiritually dead for the last two decades, maybe longer. And Joseph and God are now testing the brothers to awaken them to the reality of the guilt and sin that is entrenched in their family and whether they are actually men now who are repentant of that sin. The test of Joseph here in these chapters, beginning in 42, but you'll see it in 43 and 44 as well, is to see if their hearts have changed. Joseph is wondering, do you care about Benjamin the same way you cared about me? Or are you going to abandon your brother... Benjamin in order to save yourselves or maybe he's wondering is Benjamin even really still safe bring Benjamin to to me so I can see or did you kill him off like you got rid of me do they still care about their father are they truly honest men now or are they still deceitful and full of trickery like they were before he says by this your words will be tested whether there is truth in you And that's what Jacob seeks to discover. The the pressure on Joseph, if you can just step back and imagine, would have been to simply take off the Egyptian headdress, take off the new robes of authority that he has from Pharaoh, scrub off that Egyptian eye makeup like they have in the movies, and, and just reveal to his brothers who he was, right? Wouldn't the pressure be intense on Joseph after 22 years seeing his brothers to just say, it's me. And 17-year-old Joseph might have done that. But what we have seen over the last five messages is that God has been forging the spiritual integrity and the wisdom of Joseph in the pit, in slavery, in prison. 
Joseph is not 17 years old anymore. He's 39 years old. And there is a wisdom and there is a, a control in Joseph now where he understands and we have seen quite clearly that Joseph is an agent of God and is acting out God's purposes. And here is no different. Joseph is an agent of God and God is acting through Joseph as an agent to work in the life of Jacob's family and in the life of his brothers. So Joseph now, sitting before his bowing brothers 22 years later, is an older, wiser Joseph. He is forged into an agent of God's purpose by faithfulness that has been tested in slavery and prison for 13 years. And whether he is doing this consciously or whether it's purely by the providence of being an agent of God, he is testing his brothers in a way just like the guilt word Egypt would have triggered in them and kept them away for a time. Joseph now tests them in ways that stir up the memory of and the reality of their guilt before God in selling him into slavery. And we'll see that it's effective. What does he do? First of all, he confines them in prison for three days just as they confined him before selling them. Then he takes one of their brothers away from them so that when they return home, they have to go home one brother short just as they returned one brother short 22 years ago. And he sends them home free and clear. And this is later in the chapter. If you were to read ahead, I didn't cover it in our text. But he sends them home free and clear to live with their father and families again with grain in their sacks and even silver and money in their sacks while one brother stays captive just as they have lived free and clear after disposing of themselves of Joseph and went back to Jacob, one brother short with money in their sack 22 years ago. And all of these things are like little spiritual time bombs that go off in the conscience of the brothers as these events unfold in the chapter. And what we discover from the account is that it actually works perfectly. That it accomplishes God's purpose. And maybe Joseph too, if he was in on it with God, and I suspect he was. In verse 21, we see that this whole testing accomplished its its purpose perfectly. It says, Then they said to one another, as they're talking amongst themselves, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen, and that is why this distress has come upon us. And all of a sudden, the brothers realize that there is something deeper going on in this exchange with this weird Egyptian noble that they don't know. All they did was come down to Egypt to buy some grain. They just thought this was a simple shopping trip. They didn't ask for all of this to happen. They didn't ask you know, to be confronted by this nobility. They didn't ask for these 22-year-old memories to get dredged up. But as Joseph makes his accusations and as they are accused of being guilty of some deception and untruth, they come to realize that they actually are guilty. And this trip is no longer just about grain and finding food to live physically. These events are unfolding something deeply spiritual and the brothers know it. Reuben goes on to spell it out clearly in terms of their sin. He says, didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. Oh, Reuben knows this is a spiritual thing that's going on here. Reuben knows that God is at work. Later on, they will say, what is this that God has done to us? This is a story 
about guilt and conscience and reckoning and repentance. That's what this is about. Reuben knows all about it, and I'm certain the brothers know all about the story of Cain and Abel. When God confronted Cain in Genesis 4, 9, and 10, he says, Where is Abel your brother? And Cain says, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Do you think Reuben doesn't know this? Reuben knows exactly that this is how God works. The blood of Joseph is on their hands. You see, Cain and Abel had a brother, Seth. Seth lived at the same time as his great-great-great-great-great-grandchild, Methuselah. And Methuselah lived at the same time as his great-grandson through Noah, Shem, who lived at the same time as Jacob. You realize that Reuben is only three oral generations away from Cain. He knows this story, the story of God working in the life of Adam and Eve and Noah and Shem and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. It's not a long time for the lengths of lives these guys lived. This is just a few oral stories away. Reuben knows the law of God, and he knows the consequence. Blood cries out for blood. And Reuben, thinking Joseph dead, knows a reckoning has now come for the sin of the brothers. And this is grief leading to repentance. Let's return to our question. Why is Joseph acting this way? Why the test? Why is he so rough with his brothers? If we look back in verse 7. Joseph recognizes his brothers, but he treated them as strangers. It says, speaking roughly to them. And then later on, you'll see in verse 30, the brothers recall the event, and they say, as they're telling their father about it, they're saying, the man spoke roughly to us. Why is Joseph being so rough with them? And as Joseph presses and presses in on his brothers with these tests and and presses in on their conscience, he says, I am doing this so that you will live and not die. Not just live physically, but Joseph says, I am doing this so that you will live spiritually. The physical famine that we have in the narrative here is just a symbol of the spiritual famine that has impoverished Jacob's household all these years. And Joseph presses them until their thoughts finally turn to God and God begins to dominate their thinking. In verse 28, when they discover that the money has been put back into their sacks, we read, their hearts failed them and they turn to one another trembling and ask, what is this that God has done to us? God has to return their minds back to him. God has to take up residence once again in the conscience of the brothers and in this family of Israel. It's been too many years of burying old sins and avoiding the consequences of their rebellion. And only the wicked avoid God. Psalm 104 says, In his pride the wicked man does not seek him. In all his thoughts there is no room for God. And that has been the life of the brothers. In all their thoughts there's been no room for God. They don't want to think about it. It's been 22 years of burying this. But through his agent Joseph, God is pressing himself back into the conscience and into the minds of these other brothers. And they are going to become the fathers of the tribes of Israel. Their sin has got to be reckoned with. It can't just be left to rot there in the history of Israel. And so Joseph knows there can be a significant difference between knowing that you sinned and you are guilty. You can regret it all and you can feel deep remorse, but remorse is not repentance. It is possible you still may not turn to God in faith and repentance and believe that there's grace for you in the Lord and pardon for all your sins and and begin reconciliation and healing. We can know that we're guilty. We can avoid those trigger words. 
Don't talk to me about the cistern in Dothan. Don't mention Egypt. Don't say Joseph. Don't say my trigger word. I can avoid it. I can keep that sin buried 20 years ago. And we can feel shame and guilt and remorse and regret over it, but regret and remorse is not repentance. And Joseph knows they have to be brought to the place of repentance. And the Apostle Paul says it this way in the New Testament, writing to that church in Corinth that we often hear so much about that seem to struggle along with so much difficulty in that Corinthian church, so much difficulty throwing off the old sinful nature. And Paul rebukes them for their behavior towards each other. And he writes in 2 Corinthians 7, 8-10, to He says, for even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. And this is why Joseph is testing his brothers. This is why he's speaking roughly to him. This is why he's pressing in on their conscience. What God is pressing in on them for. For true repentance. Not simply regret. Not simply remorse. Not simply shame. But he is in fact pressing in for true repentance that removes regret. The brothers are full of grief. They are caught in distress. They are being treated roughly by Joseph and by God so that their worldly grief will not result in death, but as Joseph says, so that they might repent and live and not die. And there's a clear example of the difference between the two, of worldly grief and godly grief on the night of Jesus' own betrayal and death. On that night when Jesus went to the cross, two men sinned. And there was not much difference between their sin. They denied the Lord Jesus. Two men wept. And there was not much difference between their weeping. They were deeply grieved by what they had done. But one man, Simon Peter, wept with godly sorrow that brought him into the arms of Jesus Christ in forgiveness and restoration. And the other man, Judas Iscariot, wept with simply worldly sorrow. He was sorry for the harm that he had caused his friends, but his sorrow never drove him to seek forgiveness and parting and cleansing and restoration. He ran away from Jesus rather than running to Jesus, and he never received the grace that Peter did. Both men sinned. Both men wept. Both men were grieved. One was a godly grief that ran to the repentance and to the mercy and to the forgiveness that's available in Christ. And one ran away. And here in this story, Joseph has become God's instrument to bring his brothers to repentance, to forgiveness, and to reconciliation, and to transformation. That's why Joseph is roughing them up here. It's not to get revenge. It's to bring them life. Joseph wants to see his family restored to favor with God, get rid of this old sin. The Lord does speak roughly to us. We have to understand that, right? The scripture speaks roughly with us. It doesn't pull any punches. Those who practice such things will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Your feasts are an abomination to me. No one seeks after God. You were by nature children of wrath. Scriptures speak roughly. 
Scriptures don't treat us gently. And God puts friction in our lives to get our attention. What son is there that a father does not discipline, says in Hebrews? There has to be bad news before there's good news, and the brothers have no idea who is doing it to them. They think it's just some Egyptian nobleman. They don't know that it... But they do know that it is God that is roughing them up, as the Apostle Paul spoke roughly to the Corinthians and brought them grief so that it might lead to repentance. Maybe God is dealing roughly with you. Perhaps God is dredging up some failure and some shame and some guilt from your past. And we wish it could all just stay buried 20 years ago or two years ago or two weeks ago. We just wish it would not come back and hurt us And we don't realize, like these brothers, that it's actually God who's roughing us up. It's God who's ruffling our feathers to shake our hearts free of old sins that still chain us and still stain us. Until we bring those sins out of the darkness and into the light, until we come to Jesus, and He discloses, as Joseph will soon disclose to his brothers, that it's me, the brother who loves you, the brother who died in order to bring you salvation. We have a brother Jesus, we sinned against that brother. And he's saying, come to me. I want to forgive you. And we're going to get to that next week when Joseph forgives his brothers for their repentance. We have a brother that we've sinned against, but we have a brother that's saying, no, come to me. I've died in order that you could live. I've gone ahead where you couldn't go in order to prepare the life for you. Bread and a place for you to live as we're going to see next week. We have a brother who died to bring us salvation. There is a reckoning for our past sin that we have to deal with. It needs to be reconciled. What has been done in the dark has to come into the light. It took 22 years for Joseph's brothers to finally get this sin out into the light to get it dealt with and get it forgiven. I don't know about you. Do you have a 22-year-old sin? Or a two-year-old sin? Or a two-month-old sin? that you just want to keep buried and never have it dealt with? God is saying that sin has got to come out into the light. And God may deal with you roughly in order to bring it out. It's like heart surgery. God has sometimes got to go in there and cut it out no matter how painful it is because he cannot let that sin dwell in you any longer. So if you've sinned that you've never confessed, sin that you've never brought God, brought to God for mercy, now's the time to do it. It's easy for us, like the brothers have, to live our lives for years or even decades inwardly terrified that we would rather do anything to stop thinking about our guilt and thinking about God knowing our guilt. And that's why you avoid the trigger words. That's why you avoid those memories because you are as afraid as the brothers are, living in dread of a foreign power who has total authority over you. But like the brothers, if we come to the one against whom we've sinned, he is the one who can forgive our sins. And there's nothing more that he wants to do than to forgive our sins, as we'll see next week. Jesus is the brother we've offended. Jesus is the brother who has died so that we might live. Jesus is the brother that we can go to for forgiveness. So let's come to our Joseph, who has sufficient supply of grace for any that come and trust in him. God's perfect son who died for our salvation so that we can become his brothers again. This account of Joseph and his brothers is not just Jacob's story. It's not just the brother's story. It's not just Joseph's story. It's our story. We are all the brothers of Joseph. We have all sinned 
against our brother, Jesus. And we have to come to him in repentance. Not just regret and sorrow over what we've done, but repentance, asking for forgiveness so that it can be healed. Let's pray. Father God, you tell these stories in large, broad brushstrokes in the whole history of Israel for us to see. And so, Lord, I simply pray that as we come to the communion table today, that this would be the moment that we realize that you welcome us to this feast, you welcome us to this communion with you because you want to heal us. You want to unearth those old sins and those old guilts and shames. Not so that we can be taken revenge upon or that you can get your satisfaction, but in fact, because you love us so much that you want it to be brought into the light so it can be forgiven and healed, just as Joseph will do with his brothers. So Father, as we come to the table, let us come in full acknowledgement that you love us and that there is grace and mercy for us because the brother has gone ahead of us into a land we never could have gone into. The brother has died and lives again so that we can have life. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.